Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly news magazine keeping you up to date on all things anti-nuclear. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what it looks like when the so-called nuclear experts get it wrong. This week we have one of my favorite interviews ever. I'm talking with Susanna Frame, the award-winning investigative reporter with King 5 News in Seattle. Susanna has been the force behind a series of insightful reports on the Hanford site in southeastern Washington. Considered one of the ten most polluted places on Earth and the most radioactive site in the United States. Hear how Susanna got the gig, what it's like within her mainstream media newsroom, and some of the shocking stories she's not only discovered, but broken. That interview will be coming up in just a few minutes. Today is Tuesday, July 16, 2013, the 68th anniversary of the first nuclear atmospheric blast ever, the Trinity Blast in Almogordo, New Mexico. And here is the week's nuclear news. A lot of action on the international front this week will start out in France where at dawn on Monday, July 14, around 30 Greenpeace activists climbed fences to break into a nuclear power plant in southern France. The activists, dressed in red, said they reached the walls of two reactors at the Tricastin plant, one of France's oldest. Interior Minister Manuel Valls called for an investigation into the intrusion, which raised questions about the security of France's 19 nuclear plants and 58 reactors. The protesters unfurled a yellow and black banner on a wall above a picture of President Francois Hollande, marked with the words, Tricastin nuclear accident, president of the catastrophe? According to Yannick Rousselet, in charge of nuclear issues for Greenpeace France, with this action, Greenpeace is asking Francois Hollande to close the Tricastin plant, which is among the five most dangerous in France. If being physically able to touch the reactors is not being in a sensitive place, I don't know what is, he told Reuters. People with bad intentions could have posed a threat to the reactor's safety. We will post pictures on our website, nuclearhotseat.com forward slash blog. In India, the latest update on a story that we call Nuclear Gandhi for the nature of the struggle taking place Peaceful protests against the Kudankulam nuclear power plant were marked by an action in which the villagers of nearby Karai in Tamil Nadu dropped dead. The drop-dead gesture was an enactment of the impact the power plant would have on the people in the area. The protest was held against the clearance granted by the Atomic Energy Regulatory Board to Kudankulam's first 1,000-megawatt unit starting nuclear fission. The villagers in the vicinity of Kudankulam have been protesting against the nuclear power plant for the past 700 days, fearing for their lives and their livelihoods in the wake of the nuclear accident in Fukushima, Japan in 2011. Refuting rumors that their protests would take a violent turn, protest leader S.P. Udayakumar said, Ours is a peaceful protest. We don't believe in violence. We will not cooperate. A plant of this nature would need the cooperation of the locals. Meanwhile, the Indian Atomic Energy Commission has announced that the Gudankulam nuclear power plant has attained criticality as of July 13, 2013. You can catch the background to the Gudankulam protests and the rest of this story on Nuclear Hot Seat number 102. That's where we interview movement leader Kumar Sundaram. That's available on our website, nuclearhotseat.com forward slash blog. It's not nice to get those peace-loving Swiss upset, but upset they are, and the source is nuclear. Scientists have discovered a radioactive substance in sediment under a Swiss lake used for drinking water and situated near a nuclear plant. You think there might be a connection between the two? The Muehlberg nuclear facility, 11 miles west of the nation's capital, is believed to have caused a spike in cesium-137 found in the sediment of Lake Beale and believed to have come about through the discharge of contaminated wastewater dating back to the year 2000. Politicians and environmentalists expressed outrage last Sunday, 
that the plant and nuclear inspectors had provided no information about the higher levels of cesium-137 released more than a decade ago into a lake that provides 68% of the drinking water to the nearby town. Note that Switzerland has already voted to abandon nuclear power, but right now they're still stuck with it. In Taiwan, Typhoon Sulik's strong winds caused one of the reactors at Taiwan's first nuclear power plant to automatically shut down twice on Saturday, July 13. The winds knocked out systems designed to reduce the likelihood of direct lightning strikes on the facility at the plant's number two reactor unit, resulting in the SCRAM, or automatic shutdown from full power. While repairs were carried out on the system, the reading for the number of neutrons became exceedingly high, once again leading to an emergency shutdown as part of the protection measure. Once again leading to an emergency shutdown as part of protection measures. A spokesmodel for Taiwan Power Company said that the shutdown would not affect Taiwan's power supply. Then why bother turning it back on? Some shockingly good news out of China. The Chinese government says that it will, quote, respect public opinion. Can you imagine such a thing? Respect public opinion and scrap a planned $6 billion nuclear processing plant in the southern province of Guangdong after hundreds of protesters took to the streets to voice opposition to the project. The proposed nuclear complex was meant to have been a uranium processing facility, but the plans caused considerable unease in the neighboring financial district of Hong Kong, I think that's the operant player here, and in nearby Macau, as well as among local residents. Saturday's announcement came after hundreds of protesters paraded through the streets of Jiangmen on Friday, holding banners and wearing phrases opposing the project and chanting slogans like, Give us back our rural homes, and We are against nuclear radiation. They protested. The government listened. Democracy in action. In China? Over to Japan, where researchers have found high levels of radioactive cesium in fish caught early this month off Hitachi in Ibaraki Prefecture, almost 62 miles, 100 kilometers, from Fukushima Daiichi. Prefectural officials said 1,037 becquerels of cesium were discovered per kilogram of Japanese sea bass. That's more than 10 times the government safety limit, which is already inflated to begin with. However, at 1,037 becquerels, it is still safe to sell in the United States because our allowable radiation limit is 12 times higher than Japan's. So you might want to avoid eating sea bass until, oh, hell freezes over. Now here's where they become the runner-up for numbnuts of the week. Prefectural officials admitted they didn't know why such a high dose was detected more than two years after the accident at Fukushima Daiichi. Do you actually think that 28 months of continuous leakage of radionuclides into the ocean might have something to do with it? You think? But here is the real nuclear hot seat. None nuts of the week. When the reactors melted down at the Fukushima number 1 nuclear power plant, all beaches in Fukushima Prefecture were closed. Makes sense, doesn't it? Last year, Nakoso Beach was opened, and this year, Yotsukuro Beach became the second local beach to reopen. Authorities have deemed both of them safe. Families and young people flock in terms I say of nuclear still trying to push forward. According to in an official of Fukushima Prefecture, no radioactive materials were found in the surrounding seawater during a check on July 3rd. While in Canada, oh, really? the Mitsubishi Joint Venture Reactor As we reported design, last week Act on Nuclear Mayor Hot Seat, has passed TEPCO the first finally fast up to radiation levels in the water the surrounding the facility. Commission. The in groundwater words, closest to the ocean is the most radioactive at the Fukushima plant, and to it's highly likely, can according to them, that it has leaked into the Pacific. Radiation levels have soared in the ocean in the last few months. Readings of tritium and strontium-90 were found to be 8 to 30 times higher than the permissible limit. Levels of radioactive tritium soared to 1,500 becquerels per liter at one point. 
Then TEPCO announced a sample of seawater collected on Friday, June 21st, contained the highest level detected in seawater since the nuclear crisis began. That's according to TEPCO. So you've got a beach in Fukushima Prefecture that officials are saying has no radioactive materials in the water. Does this even make any sense? Kids are swimming in it and obviously swallowing some of it. If this isn't numb nuts, I don't know what is. Oh, those wild and crazy, out-of-control rats are at it again. In the once delightful town of Futuba, near Fukushima, nowadays vermin have the run of the place, mammals presumably suffering radiation illnesses to various degrees. As you enter the exclusion zone, you are given anti-contamination suits, masks, and dosimeters for measuring your accumulation of radiation, and then they offer you something else, rat poison. That's because at least three times in March and April of this year, rats have damaged or destroyed major pieces of equipment at Fukushima Daiichi and sister nuclear facility Fukushima Daini, including taking down emergency cooling power for over 24 hours. Without people to kill them and cats to chase them down, the population of rats has exploded. You should pardon the expression. We'll have a link up on the Nuclear Hot Seat website to an MSN.com slideshow of mutated vegetables, fruits, and flowers from the Fukushima area. This is what it looks like when genetic material gets hit by radiation, mutates, breaks, and then tries to unscramble itself. When you look at these pictures, extrapolate out to what it must be doing to human beings. This process is called fasciation. It was fasciation, I know. That was what was making the vegetables grow and grow and grow and grow. Bringing it back home to the United States, in Kansas City, Missouri, two dozen people were arrested on Saturday, July 13, for trespassing at the entrance to the National Nuclear Security Administration's New South Kansas City Complex. These people were engaged in a peaceful protest against the nuclear weapons that will soon be built there. Protesters were organized by the local chapter of PeaceWorks to coincide with Nuclear Abolition Week, July 6th through 13th. Why didn't I know about this? About 100 people gathered at the site, praying, singing songs, and speaking against nuclear weapons. Then 23 of them crossed the property line and refused to leave, inviting arrest. Hopefully it made local headlines and brought attention to the issue, because that's what it was intended to do. In Las Vegas, they are rolling the nuclear dice, and it is coming up snake eyes. Nevada Representative Dinah Titus sent a letter on Tuesday, July 9th, to the head of the Federal Department of Energy, asking to discuss a plan to ship 403 canisters of bomb-grade nuclear waste through her home state. This is sometimes referred to as Mobile Chernobyl. Representative Titus berated the Department of Energy for failing to provide Congress with adequate information about the plan to ship the canisters from Oak Ridge National Laboratory in Tennessee to a Nevada national security site. Republican Governor Brian Sandoval wrote a similar letter to the department in June, saying he did not want highly radioactive waste of the type that could be used to build a dirty bomb, buried in a shallow pit at the former National Nuclear Proving Ground north of Las Vegas. Picky, picky, picky! Energy Department spokesmodel Lindsay Geisler said in a statement that the department is committed to the safe and secure transport and disposal of nuclear waste material. What are the odds that anything could go wrong? Well, why don't you ask the residents of Lac Megantic, Quebec, about the recent oil tanker train explosion that decimated their city. Or talk with commuters in Los Angeles, where last weekend an oil tanker truck, just a single truck, overturned and exploded. This has completely closed off two major freeways in Los Angeles and created a nightmare for commuters. And realize, these were accidents that were dealing with oil, not nuclear. Nuclear is forever. 
And now it's time for the Nuclear Regulatory Commission Doc Report. Well, there was another one of those usual, quote-unquote, unusual events. That's what the NRC calls it, but it's a level one alert that took place at Diablo Canyon on July 10. They always cloak these in the thickest engineering gobbledygook kind of statements, but the one phrase that stands out to me is, hot standby. Somehow I don't think that's good. Any accident at a nuclear reactor is not good. On Monday, July 15, panels of alarms designed to quickly warn personnel of operation failures at the Pilgrim Nuclear Power Station on Cape Cod in Massachusetts mysteriously shut down and then just as mysteriously restarted. And, of course, this is another usual, unusual event that was reported to the NRC. Experts are now trying to determine the cause of the failure. Paul Blanche, a nuclear engineer and past whistleblower, called the alarm system failure a serious situation. Near Raleigh, North Carolina, analysts hired to look for flaws inside a Duke Energy nuclear plant, Shearson Harris, missed a, watch for the spin-speak word here, missed a tiny crack, just little bitty, witty, bitty, little, 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 little guy near the reactor core that went undetected for a year. The Nuclear Regulatory Commission's inspection report found the operators of the facility violated an NRC requirement by failing to find and report the quarter-inch spot of corrosion and cracking near the reactor core. Now, this may not sound like a lot. It's only a quarter of an inch. But guys, it's a crack near the core of a nuclear reactor. The discovery forced a full shutdown in May after fresh eyes reviewing year-old data found the problem. And on the East Coast, this according to Nuclear Hot Seat Facebook correspondent Eileen Mahoud Jose, at the annual NRC public hearing for Indian Point in New York, only 21 miles away from Manhattan, people asked why reactors weren't shut down safely before Hurricane Sandy. They were told, with straight faces, that the winds had not reached 100 miles per hour. Like that should be a threshold in a hurricane? There was no acknowledgement from the NRC of the dangers of flooding that led to four scram from full power to no power shutdowns that took place during Hurricane Sandy and the level two alert that took place at Oyster Creek in New Jersey. Just last week, Tropical Storm Chantal never quite made it up to hurricane status nor did it make landfall in Miami as projected. But it still raises questions for the NRC about nuclear reactor protection protocols in the face of known severe weather situations. Right now, there is no protocol for a planned shutdown in the face of a hurricane. And that, along with all the others, is why when the Nuclear Regulatory Commission is in charge, the best advice we can give you here at Nuclear Hot Seat is... Arnie Gunderson of Fairwinds Energy Education, fairwinds.com, and there's an E after fair in that, sends out a podcast just about every week. And the latest one is an interview he did with Marco Kaltofen, who is president at Boston Chemical Data Corporation and a doctoral student researcher at the Worcester Polytechnic Institute. They were in discussion about something called black dust in Japan, that has been showing up since Fukushima. Marco finally got a small sample and was able to do an analysis of it, and this was the basis of the interview that Arnie did. We'll link to this on the website, but to give you a preview, Marco said, It is much more intensely radioactive than any other soil or dust sample we've gotten from around Fukushima Daiichi. This is not a natural soil. There's something unusual happening with this stuff. He went on to say, This particle contains not only fission waste products from the reactor, but very likely contains a concentrated unburned nuclear fuel. And that's unusual. We're actually seeing material that might well have come from inside a failed fuel assembly. Arne interjected by saying, When I hear that, that's clear evidence that the containment was breached. Are these particles light enough for people to ingest them or breathe them in? 
to which Kaltofen responded, Well, certainly they could be ingested. Right now I would say they're much more an ingestion hazard, and that usually tends to target children and agricultural workers. A child on average consumes between 100 and 200 milligrams of soil a day because of hand-to-mouth activity. So that's something really to think about. We will link to this podcast on nuclearhotseat.com forward slash blog under episode number 109, which is this episode. And if you haven't checked it out already, do go to fairwinds.com, F is in Frank, A-I-R-E-W-I-N-D-S dot com, and sign up for the news alerts and for the podcast from Arnie Gunderson. This is some of the best freshest, and most cutting-edge information that you will have the opportunity to hear. And a heads-up for our listeners in the UK or who are close enough to get there. September 11 through 13, the World Nuclear Association is going to be giving the top pro-nuke symposium in the world. At least that's the way they are billing it. There are going to be panels that are led by representatives of Russia's Rosatom, France's Arriva, GE Hitachi, Kepco, Westinghouse, EDF Energy, and Can Do Energy Inc. from Canada. And one of the things they are touting is a format change so that one can, and this is a direct quote, join the debate with CEOs and industry leaders in a new versatile panel format. Doesn't that just raise all kinds of possibilities? Two final stories. The American Medical Association has passed a resolution calling for the U.S. to continue to monitor and publicly report radiation contamination in seafood, which is interesting because the U.S. does not currently monitor and publicly report radiation contamination in seafood. Nevertheless, the AMA resolution was approved before the recent announcement that Fukushima Daiichi has been continually leaking contamination into the Pacific for the last 28 months. The current policy of the Food and Drug Administration does no ongoing seafood testing for radiation. The current U.S. contamination level before the government will intervene is, as we have stated before, 1,200 becquerels per kilogram, which is 12 times higher than what is accepted for Japan and is the highest allowed anywhere in the world. And finally, Dr. Masaru Emoto, best known for his work on the hidden messages of water, as seen in the movie What the Bleep Do Me Know, and in his best-selling book by that name, conducted a water ceremony honoring the waters in Southern California. It took place just outside the San Onofre Nuclear Power Facility on July 11, and he was joined by Native American elders from the Tongva tribe and also from the Hopi tribe. According to Gene Stone, founder of Residents Organized for Safe Environment and one of the activists involved in the San Onofre closure, it was a beautiful ceremony and deeply meaningful to the people who participated. We got some great photos from it, and they will be up on the website, nuclearhotseat.com forward slash blog. Time for the week's interview, and I have to say that this stands as one of my favorites of all time. I spoke with Susanna Frame. She is an award-winning investigative journalist with King 5 News, the NBC TV affiliate in Seattle. That's right, she is with Mainstream Media. Susanna has been covering the Hanford site in Washington State and is the source of a series of insightful, incisive reports that have been regularly cited here on Nuclear Hot Seat. Susanna has won numerous awards for her work, including the Alfred I. DuPont Columbia University Award for Excellence in Broadcast Journalism, considered in the industry the most prestigious of broadcast journalism awards and the equivalent of the Pulitzer Prize. With the work she's doing on Hanford, she might be in line for that Pulitzer. Give a listen to what a real reporter sounds like, deals with, and the unlikely way she came to focus on this crucial nuclear story at the Hanford site. Susanna Frame, welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat. Oh, thanks for having me. You've been with King 5 in Seattle for more than two decades, and this is a broadcast television station. When did they first start covering the Hanford site, and how did you become involved in the coverage? 
Well, I'm assuming that years before I got here, they were covering Hanford in terms of, you know, on an environmental beat. Pacific Northwest is all about the outdoors and the environment. And we've always had an environmental specialist, and we still do. And so occasionally when there would be, you know, milestones hit at Hanford or new technology developed, an environmental specialist would go over and cover it. But this is the first time that I know of that someone in an investigative capacity has gone over and decided to shake things up. In the time that I've been there, I, I, I think I'm the first investigative reporter to try to take on uh, portions of Hanford. And are you referring to yourself as the first investigative reporter for King 5 or in general in Washington State? In the time I've been here, I haven't seen any broadcast investigative units doing anything. Maybe the Seattle Times has done a little bit, but in general, it's kind of been ignored in terms of investigative reporting, which, you know, as you know, is different than daily news reporting. In putting together the sources that you need to get the stories that you're doing, is this from inside the facility? Is this written material that is on file with the government? Is it whistleblowers? How are you getting your information? The only reason I got involved was uh, one guy, and his name is Mike Jeffrey, and he's not a confidential source. Obviously, I just you know, said his name. He's been on the air with us. He is a current employee. He's been there 26 years. What I like to do is choose one topic a year to really get into and try to make an impact. And this year, it you know, unbeknownst to me before uh, the beginning of March, that my project this year was going to be hampered. But this is a true story. On February 28th, last day of February, our investigative unit, of which there's five of us in our unit, three reporters, producer, and a photographer, we had a meeting, and it was like a story pitch meeting, and we had a new boss, a new producer, and he was just like saying, you know, what do you think is, is important community topics that we should be covering, you know, to kind of think about as we move forward into the spring, and we were talking about Sandy Hook and gun control and mental illness and all, all sorts of different community issues, and then I said, you know, gosh, there's got to be something we could start uncovering at Hanford. I go, I think that's the biggest story around. And the reason I mentioned it is because our governor, Jay Inslee, newly elected, had just been to Hanford, taken a big, uh, well-publicized tour of it, and made an announcement with the Department of Energy, which the federal government agency that runs Hanford, that, that some of our single-shell underground nuclear waste tanks were leaking. So it had been on the front page of the papers. Our environmental specialists had been covering it. And I was just like, that is bad. And I really didn't know much about Hanford at all, at all. I just said, I just really think we got to do something. And so there was one uh, reporter in our unit that really didn't have a project. And so we left the meeting, a big project he was focusing on. We left the meeting, and he said, okay, I'm going to figure out something and see what we can do on Hanford. The next day, I got a direct message on Facebook out of the blue from someone I've known for 30 years that said, hey, Susanna, do you want to know the real scoop about Hanford? Give me a ring, Mike. And then he left his phone number. And I happened to check my direct messages that day, and I called him, or I, I messaged him back right away, and I said, of course I want to know what's going on at Hanford. Were you in a room? You know, were you listening? And, so this is, this uh, is just serendipity that happened. It kind of yes, fell into yes. your lap at the right time. Yes. This is weird things that have happened in my career just like this. So then we started talking on the phone, and I've known him for 30 years because I went to high school with him. My husband went to junior high with him, and I didn't even know he worked at Hanford. So I hadn't seen him in that long. So we started talking on the phone. He was telling me uh, specific things that he had encountered working at Hanford. Most recently, that he was the one that discovered that the first double-shell nuclear waste tank was leaking at Hanford and that his company had ignored the leak for a year. His, he works for a U.S. government contractor. That's the Washington and, River Project solution. Yeah, it's, uh, it's called protection Washington solution. River yeah, Protection Solution. doesn't really roll at the time. So we just call it WRPS or WORPS. So um, it sounded very interesting to me. So I got in my car, and on my day off on Sunday, I drove to where he lives, which is Yakima, Washington, which is where I grew up. That's about two and a half hours away from Seattle. And I met with him at a restaurant, and I left five hours later with a huge pile of notes and a big notebook that he had given me. And by the time I'd driven back that night on Sunday, I had like eight stories in my head just to, to begin with that I thought we could do. 
So that's how I got interested. That was, I'd say, March 10th. So literally before the beginning of March, I didn't know really anything about Hanford, but I've been studying it and breaking stories and, and producing stories in a rolling investigation ever ever since then. How has the support been within King 5 to this series of reports? Oh, awesome. Awesome. We have the most amazing news director and general manager. And he is the type of leader who just he just trusts our unit. If we think it's a story, then he trusts us and believes us and in us and lets us do what we need to do. Now, of course, you have to deliver and bring the goods and have a, you know and be producing stories and put them on TV and online. But um, I think we're really lucky in that capacity in that our company, Belo, uh, is very supportive of investigative journalism and definitely our management is. So a travel I need to do, he says yes. Hanford is a long way from here. It's in eastern Washington, and it takes almost four hours to get there. So it's not like I can just get up and run over there and do a quick interview. So we've Mm -hmm. been over there a lot. And, you know, it's been an investment. You know, we've we've had our helicopter flying over there, getting lots of shots. We've stayed in lots of hotel rooms. We've traveled on the East Coast to consult with the best experts in the nuclear field. So, you know, my hat is off to my station for that kind of support. That's what it takes. That's actually what got the two of us in contact with each other because within the nuclear movement, we, of course, watch mainstream media praying for something, anything to be covered. And the one place with consistent coverage of a nearby nuclear problem was King 5 News in Seattle and you. So that was my outreach just to commend you, and that's what started this connection. I'm wondering, one of the problems that emerged at the site is that it's been known since sometime last year, I think it was October, correct me if I'm wrong on that, but it's been known that this double-sided tank was actually leaking into the environment, but WRPS chose not to do anything about it or tried to cover it up. To what extent were you involved with breaking that aspect of the story? Well, no one knew about that aspect of the story until we did the story. Yeah, we we did break that story. Um, Washington State Department of Ecology didn't know about it. Many people within WERPS themselves, I I don't think really anybody at WRPS knew. I don't think the Department of Energy knew, the U.S. government. So we were the ones that that let, you know, basically the world know that this company knew or should have known in October of 2011 that for the first time ever, a double-shell nuclear waste tank was leaking the most dangerous material in the world into what's called the annulus. So that's the hollow space, the safety space, between the inner and the outer shell. So you can say, ah, big deal. It's safely held in that safety space. That's why it has a double shell. But unfortunately, I broke the story then just last month in June that it's now leaking into the soil. So to have proceeded as they did, which was to basically ignore the leak, to talk themselves out of it being a leak, coming up with all sorts of different theories about what was really going on except for the truth, which was nuclear waste was leaking, you know, that that was irresponsible. And we, when I found out about it through this contact I told you about, you know, I knew I had to get the documentation to back it up because it's a very serious allegation to make, and I think we did. You know, everything that we reported is based in records that I obtained either on seriously on the Internet. There was a huge report that was written but was totally buried, a 500-page report written by WRPS, and 496 pages of it with gloss over, you know, making excuses and so forth mm-hmm. for the truth. But there was about four or five pages in there where they incriminated themselves. And few people read an assessment report top to bottom unless you're paid to do so like me. And the people who generate those reports count on it. Oh, yeah. I mean, the executive summary, if you were to read the executive summary, two pages. Ta-da! In October of 2012, we found out it was leaking. And aren't we shocked? And we're going to make an announcement to the world, and we all covered it that time. And I came around in 2013 and said, uh-uh, it was leaking well before that, and your contractor did nothing, sat on it, 
made excuses, called it rainwater, as one red flag after another rolled in that it was leaking nuclear waste. And we pointed that out in many different reports and covered it from several different angles and tried to expose something new in every report. I mean, I think we've done about 10 so far. We've been covering it. You get picked up by a service called enenews.com, which is a news aggregator on all things that are pertinent to the anti-nuclear stance on the nuclear movement. And it, regularly, your reports are linked to and promoted, and from there it goes out to the entire community that's working on these issues internationally. Oh, good. That's good. What has been the official response to this information that has been broken to the public because of your coverage? Well, I'm in constant communication with the public information officials at WRPS and with the U.S. Department of Energy and with the Washington State Department of Ecology. And I have a very, very open approach to my reporting. Nothing I've reported is a surprise to them because I tell them ahead of time what I'm going to say. How far ahead of time? Usually a week. It depends on, you know, how far out. You know, once I got the investigation rolling, then I was doing about one story a week and producing as I went along. So the minute I knew what my new story would be, I would email them, call them, tell them, and give them an opportunity to respond. And I kept very good records of all this, and I even put them online, all of my communications with these different officials, begging them to participate in the story, to to go on camera, and they all refused except for eventually the Washington State Department of Ecology did go on camera. But anyway, their response has been basically nothing. They've never corrected me. They've never called me to challenge me. At the beginning, especially WRPS officials were extremely condescending. They tried to bully me. They tried to tell me that basically I was an idiot, but I didn't know what I was doing. I've never had media professionals uh, deal with me in that way. Cause, I mean, I've been around for a long time. And, I mean, not... And you, have an extra- you have an extraordinary resume and an extraordinary career filled with acknowledgement of the excellence of the reporting that you have done. thank you. But, you know, it's not like I just showed up and, you know, fell off the cart and, and, oh, maybe I'm going to do a story on this. I mean, I'd researched it thoroughly. And we don't put anything on TV that is innuendo, rumor. That's just not the way it works. I mean, there's too much liability. It's too important. And truth and accuracy and context is what my unit is about. But when I presented them with you know, my initial evidence, and I told them what I was going to do and that I was planning on doing a multi-part series. I think they were just so shocked because they didn't know anything about it. If they did know about it, they faked it really well. But they were, uh, I I was really surprised at the way I was treated. They just said, do you even know how to Google? I mean, clearly, you've never Googled uh, radiation because you don't know anything about radiation. And I tried to say, well, you know, I've gone all over the country and interviewed experts. So who are your experts? And I would tell them, well, who's Arjun Makajani? And I said, well, he's one of the top nuclear physicists in the world. And I went to Virginia to interview him. Huh, have you ever worked at a tank farm? I mean, that's the way they were tra- talking to me. So mm-hmm. they really tried to beat me, browbeat me into not doing the story at all. They said, we think you will be publicly humiliated if you go on TV and online and report this, because what you're saying is so absurd, Susanna. You're saying we ignored a leak that's completely false. We did everything we could, blah, 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 blah. I can't believe you're planning on doing one story, let alone ten. So I was super upfront with them, and I just had to press on. You know, I can't let that kind of browbeating and bullying behavior keep me from pursuing the truth. So we went ahead, and they've never come out and said, hey, you know, thank you. Thank you. And, you know, I think that's what they should say. Thank you. Now we can maybe do it better next time because this isn't the only double shell tank. There's 27 others. And because of our reporting, for example, they don't know that, I, I mean, I have to find this out through my sources, but they immediately put together a safety committee within WRPF so that they could put together badly needed and missing alarm response plans. And that was one of my stories, is that when the alarm sounded that this waste was leaking in October 
October 9th of 2011, they didn't have a plan in place on what to do. In fact, I have the logbook from the shift manager, the page of the logbook. logbook. It says, in midnight on October 9th, 2011, cannot find alarm response procedure. Basically, the poor guy didn't know what to do. And they fumbled around for a year until they couldn't ignore it anymore. And WRPS told me they did have what's called an ARP, alarm response procedure. They had one. They always have had one. And I said, no, you you don't. Show it to me. And, you know, they tried to fudge around with this procedure and that and that. And I said, no, none of those are alarm response procedures. And if you would have had one, you would have had to follow it, and you probably would have found this leak a year before. So officially they were telling me, oh, we we have a plan. Actually, we didn't even need a plan because we had all these other procedures. But behind the scenes, after my story aired, they formed a committee. They put the whistleblower that we interviewed on the committee, and they're putting together those procedures now. So this isn't going to happen again. The next time, I hope it doesn't happen again, but if it does happen again, if, if the leak detection alarm goes off, I think they'll know what to do. So personally, I think they should say, hey, thanks, King Five. We're going to make this better for our community. And I would not, hold, I would not hold my breath waiting for that. No, kind of I, I'm shocked. I'm shocked. <laughs> and the Department of Energy really hasn't responded much to me. I mean, you can see in my stories they're running away from me in a parking lot. When I tried to interview them, that was embarrassing for them. And uh, the Department of Apology has come out and thanked us publicly you know, the governor's representative is the director of ecology. Her name is Maya Bellin. Uh, I did one little story with her. And they are very frustrated because they found out a lot about that tank and about a lot of the issues surrounding the leak from watching TV. And, you know, they are... It's the, not the way it should happen because they should be getting the straight information. I mean, you are a... This is an example of why we need a free and independent press the overall term, be it broadcasting or in print, but why we need a free and independent press in this country to hold corporations and governments and businesses up to the highest possible standards because obviously the lies are going on and until they're called in a public way that embarrasses them enough or threatens them with lawsuits enough, they're not going to come forward and cop to what it is they're actually doing or not doing. I'm sure they do a lot of really good things there. I know they've hit a lot of milestones. I know they've done good work. I think they've done a lot of good stuff with groundwater treatment and and protecting the Columbia River, which, you know, Hanford is right on the banks of the Columbia River. But that's the story they want to tell. Those are the only stories they want to tell. And when something goes badly, that is when it's time to hunker down, circle the wagons, and, you know, try to get someone like me off off of the topic. And typically what happens is this stuff comes out from whistleblowers and they are punished. They are systematically, typically not just from WRPS, but from all the different contractors. It happens at every level of the nuclear industry. We have many stories of that coming out from San Onofre here in Southern California. Right. But it's not happening this time. It oh, really? It is not happening. No, absolutely not. Mike Geffrey, our main whistleblower, now since then I've developed many other sources but they're all confidential. No one wants to tell us about this. That took a lot of courage for him to go on camera, you know, more than once with us. And I think it's because of the way he did come out with his story. He came out with his story on TV. And I think in a weird way that provided him more protection. A, he's right, which, you know, the truth is always good to have on your side. And he's so credible, and he's such a great employee. He's not a troublemaker. He's one employee of the year, employee of the month. So, you know, contractors change. He's worked for, like, six different contractors because the low-bid company will get the contract. So this is his fifth or sixth contractor he's worked for. And the first four or five treated him really well. And this is the first one that they just didn't want to hear what he had to say when he found this leak. But anyway, I think because... His story came out publicly like that. They really couldn't do anything to him because the next story was going to be that he got fired. Do you know what I mean? I mean, I I don't know. It's it's been very interesting. He likes his job better than ever. He feels like a huge burden was lifted because he carried this around for a year. 
and didn't know what to do. He knew what was at risk. He was so frustrated. And my second story in the series uh, focuses a lot on what he went through personally and almost quit his, his job and his really great career because he was trying to do the right thing and they just were telling him to shut up. And so when he didn't get any action and he didn't trust the system, he reached out to me on Facebook. Amazing. We did do an interview on Nuclear Hot Seat a few weeks ago with some of the activists who are involved in Hanford. Have you been in contact at all with Washington State Physicians for Social Responsibility, or have they contacted you? I've met uh, one of their representatives at a nuclear kind of an open house event at the University of Washington. So I met I met one of the representatives there, and I've seen some of their other members at Hanford Advisory Board meeting. You know, they've emailed me, but I no, I haven't had them a part of my search yet. I, I mean, I think they'd be great, and we're not done, and so I hope that we will be working with them in the future. The watchdog organizations that I've reached out to for basically just for response is Hanford Challenge, Heart of America Northwest, and also Columbia Riverkeeper. Now, they're based in, in Oregon, and those other two are based here in Seattle. What advice would you want to give anti-nuclear activists who are concerned with the Hanford issue and elsewhere? This could extrapolate out. But what advice would you give them for improving their communication with you and their dealings to make it easier for them to at least be in the queue to have a voice on the issues? Well, it's very easy to find me. Anybody can email me, sframe at king5.com, or if you just go to the King5 website, my contact information is there. And I welcome all voices. You know, I've worked really hard to try to get different people involved and on camera, and I can tell you it is not easy. We want different voices and we want diversity from the community, but I just can't tell you how hard it's been to get people to want to step up because let's say you're a scientist, you know, the work is with the government. And there's a whole culture up here of just not saying anything negative about Hanford. I truly had no idea this was so new for you. I just assumed you'd been covering Hanford for the last 20 years. No, 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 no. I've never even done an environmental story before as an investigative reporter. <laughs> you sure hit the ground running, doing an extraordinary job, because truly there's no other reporter in the country who's been given this freedom, certainly in broadcast to be able to get a local nuclear-related story out with this much consistency and with an investigative bent to it as opposed to just taking the talking points that they get from the press releases. So I'm so grateful to Mike Geffrey and his courage to come forward. I want to shift this slightly. Until recently, King 5 was owned by BELO, the broadcast organization you talked about, which was on the small side regional player with 20 commercial broadcast TV stations and two regional 24-hour cable news TV stations. But just last month, in June, BELO was purchased by Gannett, or at least Gannett announced that they were planning to buy BELO, which will then make Gannett the fourth largest broadcast organization in the country. In other words, it may not be an 800-pound gorilla, but it's a 700-pound gorilla. Mm -hmm. How do you think this change of ownership will impact the kind of reporting that you've been empowered to do? I don't think it's going to change at all. Gannett has a great track record. And the person that is at the top of the heap at Gannett over news is one of my former news directors. And I have all the confidence in the world that he has the same value system that we do. His name is Dave Luigi. He's a great journalist, a very smart person, and I haven't worried one minute about that. I think it's going to be fine. What has impacted you most personally about what you've been learning? Um, I, I, I always say this when I, every time I go to the Tri-Cities and I see new buildings going up and more condos and more restaurants coming in, I go, that is just a sign of hopelessness. I, I, I don't think it's hopeless. I would never, I, I'm not that type of person. I'm very positive, even though, you know, the kind of things I report on are never, you know, happy-go-lucky. But I am a positive person, but it's it's just sad to me the wasted opportunities over there and just the machine, how the money just keeps coming in and keeps coming in. 
and they've just hit so many setbacks in the last couple of years that I just feel like, especially coming from that part of the country, you know, I'm from eastern Washington, I just think it's not going to be my kids. I think it's going to be my grandkids and my great-great-grandkids or one other generation still dealing with it. It's really, that's been sad to me, is to think about how long it's taken, how every single projection, every promise the federal government has made to us, they've blown, whether that be environmentally or financially. Again, of course they've done some really good things, but there's 56 million gallons of nuclear sludge in those underground tanks. Those tanks were never built to last this long. They're breaking down. The stuff's getting into the soil, and everything rolls downhill. You know, it's, it, mm-hmm. sooner or later, if they don't figure it out, it's going to end up in the Columbia River. Is there some thought or belief or concept or anything at all that you would like to say that perhaps we haven't covered yet? I think for real change to happen over there, I really think Congress has to get more involved. I think that the Northwest is lucky in that Senator from Oregon, Ron Wyden. Ron Wyden, yes. It, yeah, and he has the highest position in the Senate on nuclear issues with Energy Committee. So I think that's good, but I think more has to be done. I think on the congressional level, and if, if the public wants to have a voice and want to see something positive change, I really think Congress has to be pushed to get third party there to oversee the site. I think that's what it's going to take, a new set of eyes over there. I would like to see, and I put it on myself, too, to make my reporting compelling enough that Congress will get involved. I've been in touch with our senators. They really haven't seen that interested yet, and that's been a source of disappointment for us. You know, I think they're in contact behind the scenes, but they haven't. You'll see they they don't show up in any of my stories yet, and I've been on them. So... That is one of my goals, is to see Congress get involved and do something positive. I can think of no one better to push that agenda forward than you. (laughs) Well, thank you. Susanna, this has been an absolute delight. Thank you so much for being my guest this week on Nuclear Hot Seat. Sure. It was my pleasure. Thanks for taking an interest in our stories. I appreciate that. Susanna Frame from King 5 News in Seattle. We'll have a radiation protection tip in just a moment. But I want to remind you that Nuclear Hot Seat needs your support to keep bringing you the anti-nuclear news you won't get anywhere else, except maybe on King 5 in Seattle. But not even they cover the range of nuclear news you heard here today, along with radiation protection tips, activist advisories, the numbnuts of the week, NRC report, and so much more. So if you like what you hear, or maybe like isn't the right word for this, but at least appreciate gaining access to this information. We'd really appreciate a contribution to help keep us going. Go to our website, nuclearhotseat.com, and then on the homepage, scroll down and hit the donate button, then follow the prompts. It's easy to do, and whatever you give, it will go a long way towards keeping Nuclear Hot Seat alive and kicking in the world. Now the radiation protection tip. Elevated levels of nuclear radiation showed up in California cow's milk immediately after Fukushima. The University of California Berkeley School of Nuclear Engineering tested that milk for the first 18 months after the nuclear disaster began. The readings they got consistently showed radiation levels even in organic milk of up to 150% above background levels. Now, I avoid dairy products for health reasons, but I still like my cheese. So I would occasionally pick up this great, yummy, aged cheddar at Trader Joe's. It had been aged over two years, and I figured that it seemed safe enough. But the last time I bought some was just about a month ago. I was in the middle of eating a lovely piece of it when I realized, if this cheese was two years old, it must have been made in the first four months after Fukushima began, meaning the time when the radionuclides were flying thick and fast all around. As soon as I had that thought, I put down the cheese. I threw it out. So now, as of July of 2013, unless I find a cheese that has been aged for at least 30 months, I'm going to avoid it. 
You are, of course, a choice as to what you choose to do. I just have to keep it in my mind. Every month, that odometer flips over another month and another month and another month. Just something to keep in mind the next time you go grocery shopping. And whatever you do, don't get me started about sushi. Hey, if you have access to John Stewart or any of his staff, please let him know that he needs a nuclear pundit for his program and I am it. If you have any access at all to John Stewart or anyone on his staff, please send me contact information so that I can plead my case for this. So let's play the game of six degrees of separation and get the two of us together. If you've got any leads, you can send them to the email address, info at nuclearhotseat.com. Here's the final thought. Did you know that the highest thyroid cancer rates in the United States are grouped within 50 miles of the nuclear reactor at Three Mile Island? Nuclear experts like to say, nobody died from Three Mile Island. But there are a lot of reasons why there are no reliable statistics that prove their point, just an absence of statistics so that we can prove ours. Most of America seems to have forgotten that Three Mile happened on March 28th of 1979. Certainly people have forgotten the terror of nuclear that rightfully swept this nation and set back the nuclear juggernaut by a good 20 years. Next year, March 28th, marks the 35th anniversary of that nuclear accident. The time is now to start planning our awareness actions for 2014. The media tends to ignore anniversaries of significant events unless they fall one maybe two years afterwards, and then it snaps into this thing where they will only recognize numbers divisible by five. You'll get the reminder reports on the 5th, 10th, they'll skip 15 and go straight to 20, 25th, 35th, and then the 50th anniversaries. So next year is 35, that's our shot. If you have any ideas how to mark this important anniversary, send me an email at info at nuclearhotseat.com and we'll get a conversation going. I'll share my thoughts about it on this program, and maybe we will develop a peaceful yet dramatic set of actions all over the country, maybe even all over the world, to get people to start paying attention to the true negative impact of nuclear on our health, safety, economy, and genetic future. In closing, this has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, July 16, 2013. Material for this week's podcast has been compiled from enenews.com, nbcnews.com, worldnuclearnews.org, ndtv.com, indiatoday, bloomberg.com, chinapost.com, Fairwinds Energy Education, and the esteemed Arnie Gunderson, NHK, Channel 4 UK, and Alex Thompson, medscape.com, msn.com, kshb.com, startribune.com, knoxnews.com, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, Cod Online, WRAL.com, simplyinfo.org, Gene Stone and Residents Organized for a Safe Environment, Gigi Press, Asahi Shimbun, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, those wild and crazy guys at World Nuclear News, and the Nuclear Hot Seat Facebook community with a shout out to Eileen Mahood Jose. The Rat Song is excerpted from The Pied Piper of Hamlin, Story with Songs by JJ's Tunes and Tales. It's available on iTunes or at JJS tunesandtales.com The songwriter is John Stegman, the vocalist Julie Lyons. The archive for Nuclear Hot Seat is available on iTunes, under podcasts, or at nuclearhotseat.com Again, the blog page, or you can click on our archives. The blog page does have enrichment with links, pictures, videos, and a mini-description of each week's content. It will help with your understanding of the issues, especially if you're new to them. In case you haven't guessed, Nuclear Hot Seat is the activist voice on nuclear issues. So if you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. We are copyright 2013, Libby Halevi and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use is allowed. You have permission to reuse any material in this podcast as long as proper attribution, website, and email included. That would be my name, nuclearhotseat.com, and info at nuclearhotseat. 
This is Libby Halevi of Heartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that San Onofre is still shut down forever. Woohoo! And we've all had our nuclear wake-up call. Now, whatever you do, do not go back to sleep. <laughs>